Well, we often know of the anthropic principle being applied to astronomy, this idea that our universe has been designed or seems to be have all the right properties to be fit for life, to make life possible. And this often is approached, you know, the position of our planet and all the things that our Earth has and how it's we're in this kind of Goldilocks zone. Well, the question that we're going to be discussing on the show today is, can that anthropic principle be applied not just to astronomy, but to biochemistry? When we look at the world of biochemistry to proteins and DNA and these different biochemical systems, can the complexity of these systems best be explained by natural selection? Or is there actually seem to be what appears to be kind of this end result fit for life purpose. And so that is what the question we're going to be looking at today is what is the best explanation for these complex biochemical systems? To join me and having this conversation is Dr. Fazal Rana, uh, the senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe. He's the vice president of research and apologetics. Reasons to Believe, an organization dedicated to communicate the powerful scientific evidence for Christianity. Again, all the RTB scholars have been on the show before. This is Fazrana's uh, fourth time I I believe on the show one of my most repeat guests so thank you for being such a repeat guest on the show <laughs> hey, hey ryan it's always a lot of fun to hang out with you so yeah thanks for inviting me to to chit chat a little bit about my my new book fit for a purpose so. absolutely yeah so the first time back in podcast only first time he's on the show is talking about uh human origins biochemistry and, ev and and evolution i think then he came back on a second time to talk about one of his other books humans 2.0 looking at transhumanism and then once the youtube interviews started he came on to talk about the book he contributed to thinking about evolution and now as he just mentioned his new book fit for a purpose does the anthropic principle include biochemistry so i'm looking forward to a fun conversation and as always my name is Ryan Polly. This show is geared to get you to think deeply about Christianity, defend it well, and faithfully live it out. And so we're going to look here at what can we understand from science and how does this point to maybe a God and maybe a creator. And so um, as always, again, if you have questions, submit those in the live chat and we will do our best to get to those questions that you have and objections that you have. So let's start off kind of um, in this. And and I kind of mentioned at the very beginning, uh, this idea of the anthropic principle and, and how that normally is applied to astronomy and now how you are trying in this book to apply it or see if it applies to biochemistry. So for those who are saying, kind of give me some more explanation, what is the anthropic principle? How would you define this? Yeah, well, you know, Ryan, I think most people that have any interest in the science-faith conversation or who are interested in, in uh, Christian apologetics probably have some, familiar with the, some familiarity with the anthropic principle. And it's oftentimes couched this way, that the, the fundamental constants and numerical parameters and characteristics that define the universe have to assume exacting, precise values in order for life to be possible in the universe. And if any one of these, you know, numerical constants deviates in some instances almost imperceptibly from the values that they have, then life simply isn't possible in the universe. And so a lot of times the emphasis, and rightly so, is on the fact that when you see fine tuning, that's an indication of design. But there's a deeper, uh, insight that comes from the anthropic principle, and that is the idea that the universe seems to be fit for a purpose. That is, that that the constants of the universe are exactly they, what they need to be for life to be possible. And in a sense, that the set of constants seems to be uniquely suited for supporting life. And so it, that, that looks like, again, not only is the universe designed, but that there is an intentionality or a purpose uh, to the universe that you might say there's a teleology 
uh, to the universe. And that has obvious implications for, you know, not only God's existence, but role in, again, creating the universe with the idea that ultimately life would appear in the universe and, and humanity would appear. And so it's a, you know, a very powerful argument, you know, for a creator's role, again, in the origin, in, in the, the, the uh, history of the universe. But also it's an idea that is largely accepted by virtually all astronomers. You know, almost every astronomer would agree that with the anthropic principle, now where the dispute is, is how do we interpret the anthropic right. principle? Is it theism or is it some other alternative uh, interpretation that's possible? Yeah, and I think that's an important point is, is you know, I, I read the book, you know, like the Goldilocks Enigma by Paul Davies, an astronomer, not a Christian, uh, but is is saying again that it, when we look at astronomy, we live in this Goldilocks zone, right? Not too hot, not too cold. It's just right. Not too big, not too small. It's just right sort of thing. And, and so what, that's one thing I kind of like of how you approach this book is it's it's not just saying I'm a Christian, therefore I need a creator. And therefore here's how this points to a creator is, is this is kind of a it has theistic implications, but is not just presented by theists, right? Because yeah. what we're looking at here and, and is, is what does the, the scientific data show us? And if it shows us that this is kind of fit for a purpose, then it's fit for a purpose. Then the worldview comes in of how do we explain that fit, right? Would that be right. Right, the right way of putting it? Yes. I mean, you know, and, and I think, you know, uh, particularly if you adopt a theistic interpretation of the cosmological anthropic principle, then you, you, you would argue that if that indeed is the right interpretation, then would we not expect that, that the, the chemical environment of the universe that would be necessary to support life should also display evidence for the anthropic principle that uh, this should also be true for biochemistry and biology as well. And so in Fit for a Purpose, I, I look to explore, you know, uh, the possibility that chemistry and biochemistry manifest these anthropic coincidences just like cosmology and, and, and physics. And if that's the case, then now you've got this unified picture of, of the universe where it's not just the universe itself that seems fit for a purpose, but it's the chemical environment as well as the, the nature of living systems at a fundamental level that display, again, evidence for this uh, for the anthropic principle and in, in fitness for purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And so again, kind of repeating that, I think it's important to kind of clarify and for my mind and for everybody else who's listening is like the, the conclusions or at least the data presented here is, is not, uh, should not necessarily be objected to simply because someone is not a Christian or not a theist, right? This is uh, secularists and Christians can all agree on the data. Uh, then we're looking at that. And that's kind of how I titled the show is like, now what best explains that? Does natural selection best explains uh, best explain the data that we see? Uh, or is there a better explanation uh, for this, this data that seems like things are fit for a purpose? Now, um, why maybe, uh, I guess maybe let me back up for a second. A different question is, um, how is this maybe similar or different than like a design argument? Because there's there have been lots of design arguments that use biochemistry, use the information in DNA, use these molecular machines like the bacterial flagellum to make a design argument for a designer. Um, how, but yet you kind of talk about how this is a, a new thing of applying the anthropic principle to biochemistry. So how is what you're doing here in this book similar or different than using biochemical systems to make kind of a design argument? Yeah, yeah, and that's a, a great question. And, you know, um, 
in, uh, for example, in my book, The Cell's Design, you know, the emphasis there in that book is that, you know, making the case that biochemical systems not only appear to be designed, but that they actually are designed. But, the, but it's uh, primarily type, a type of watchmaker reasoning where we know what design systems look like and do biochemical systems fit that criteria. And, you know, and I, I argue that, that they, do, they do fit that criteria, you know, in the cell's design. And, and, you know, the approach I take there is not that different, really, than what Michael Behe uh, does or what Bill Dembski has done. Well, you know, Michael Behe has this idea of irreducible complexity. Bill Dembski specified complexity. And, and what they're trying to do is that those terms are, in a sense, um, uh, patterns or features that essentially reflect the work of, of a designer. And, and they're arguing that, you know, biochemical systems are irreducibly complex or they display specified complexity. Another approach is to, in effect, rule out natural process mechanisms as an explanation, uh, in this case for biochemistry. <laughs> that would be kind of a, what you might call a negative design argument where if evolutionary mechanisms can't produce these systems, then it's you know conceivable that they're the work of a of a designer. Uh, and then you know I've got a book, Creating Life in the Lab, where we kind of make the case that hey, when we go in the lab and we try to create protocells, it it becomes evident that intelligent agency is absolutely critical in converting simple molecules into these chemical supersystems that begin to assume the properties of life. So what fit for a purpose does is, is essentially complement those arguments by basically saying that biochemical systems uh, seem to be fine-tuned. That is, they have the just right set of properties and that they uniquely have those just right set of properties. And it appears as if what actually dictates the chemical and physical properties of biochemical systems isn't a historically contingent evolutionary process, but rather instead, it seems they seem to be prescribed or predetermined by the very laws of nature, uh, and so that it's it's not you know your grandmother's evolution, but rather it if it is evolution, it is looks as if the whole system is jimmy rigged so that the outcome is is guaranteed to be exactly wh what it is, and, and so. It's a it's a complementary argument for design that kind of expands, you know, the the palette of design arguments, you know that that again collectively all are pointing to the same conclusion that there's a mind behind everything. Yeah. So I want to kind of give maybe uh, let, let's kind of get specific on, on one of your examples and kind of look at what this talks about, because you brought up some ideas here of this kind of c contingent evolutionary process versus kind of this built-in designed kind of framework. And so the, the first thing you mentioned here in the book is proteins. Um, and so uh, what is it about proteins that we're looking at? How do, do proteins kind of uh, fit this idea of the anthropic principle? Like, Where would you kind of start in showing how proteins fit what you're trying to get at here? Yeah, well, and, you know, and, you know, we could spend hours talking about <laughs> all, all the remarkable anthropic coincidences and the uh, facets of fine-tuning that are associated with protein structure and function. Uh, but for example, uh, there are 20 amino acids that are used to build proteins. Now, these, you know, 
20 amino acids are 20 of several hundred amino acids that occur in, in nature or that have been made synthetically in the lab. And so that begs the question, well, why these 20 amino acids? And what we discover is that every aspect of, of amino acid structure has to be exactly the way it is in order to get a, you know, proteins that would essentially assume, you know, the, the, the structures that and, and functional capabilities that would be necessary for life. And so of the, the set of 20 amino acids, you know, the, it's the, the optimal just right set where there's no other amino acid combinations that could be used that would give you these just right optimal properties. And this is experimentally determined. This is not something that, you know, uh, is wishful thinking on my part. I can show you, you know, scientific papers where these conclusions are being drawn. Or the amino acids are joined together by, you know, what's called a, an amide linkage or a peptide bond. And that bond is a really bizarre, highly unusual chemical bond that has all these uh, the properties that flow out of its unusual nature. And those properties are precisely what you need in order to have not only a chemically durable backbone, but a backbone that can actually uh, uniquely adopt these secondary and tertiary structures that you need for, uh, for proteins to be functional. And that there's no other alternative to an amide linkage or to a peptide bond that will work. And so if you take the closest possible chemical analog uh, to a, a, a protein, which would be a a, a polyester made from alpha hydroxy uh, acids, uh, you simply cannot get a comparable molecule or set of molecules to proteins. Uh, these molecules don't have the, the, the just right properties. So this is a way to show experimentally kind of the unique nature of proteins. You know, proteins have, uh, their backbone has a just right geometry uh, so that the diameter of the protein backbone relative to the length of a chain, you know, self interactions of a protein chain is a just right value that allows for the, the folds that we see in nature to, to take place uh, that are just right folds that impart functionality. So, so in other words, proteins have these, you know, these collection of just right properties that we see at every level of protein structure uh, that these uh, that proteins seem to be unique in their capacity to form functional, uh, you know, biomolecules that are exactly what we need for life, and that the 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 properties of proteins actually seem to arise out of the constraints uh, of the laws of nature. It's not something that it looks as if natural selection hit upon. Uh, through a historically contingent evolutionary process. So kind of based on that last thing you said, like right there is, is this is all amazing. And this is one thing I noticed as, as I was reading through the book and not as a molecular, you know, a biochemist um, is, is like, just like being blown away at just all the detail and the intricate system that is then created is just so complex. And again, in my mind, I go, my goodness, like, 
just like you walk into a factory or something, we have all these complex machines all doing their part in order to build a car or something. You you don't get this sort of complexity by just pure random chance. But but obviously kind of the natural selection argument would be, well, through evolutionary processes, through natural selection, these things get acted upon. And obviously the ones that work get selected. The ones that don't work don't get selected. And that's why we got the ones that work well. You don't know about all the other bad bonds and, and proteins and amino acids and, and all these chemicals that, that didn't select because of natural selection. So why why is this maybe not, uh, in your mind, a sufficient explanation of just natural selection selected that which works? Yeah. And, and, and something to be clear, you know, is that the approach that I take in Fit for a Purpose, you know, is really a scientific approach. I'm really asking a scientific question that has theological implications. Right. And that is, again, does the anthropic principle, you know, uh, include biochemical systems? And so when I talk about the idea that natural selection isn't the explanation, what I'm really doing here is comparing a historically contingent evolutionary process with a, a process with the dictates or the constraints of the laws of nature. So I'm not even really comparing right. evolution versus design. It's really how do we explain that? Because the the way ev evolution is is lar largely described is it's a historically contingent process where you know evolution is using what's available and and through a you know trial and error process uh, is producing some kind of outcome that that works just good enough for life to survive. And what I'm saying is that that it doesn't look as if that's the case, uh, because, but rather it looks as if that the laws of nature are somehow already in place, already have been predetermined at the time of the universe's origin, so that the only way that you can have, you know, uh, biochemical systems is if they are built around proteins as the workhorse molecules of of living systems, and so it's really comparing. Uh, is it the laws of nature that are producing these systems or is it a historically contingent evolutionary process? And if indeed it's the laws of nature that are constraining and have already predetermined the, the outcome, then if, if it is an evolutionary process, it's not your, you know, your grandmother's evolution, right? It, it, it's actually something very different where, you know, uh, it, where, you know, the, the outcome has already been again, predetermined. And no matter how that the evolutionary process proceeds, it's only going to wind up in one spot. There's no other possibility that it could go any other way than to take you to that one spot. Yeah. Now you, you explain this well in the book of, um, again, what you're comparing here. And I, and I, and I mentioned this to you before the show started, right. And I like this approach of, it's not just like as a Christian, I believe God created. And so now I'm going to go find evidence of creation. That's not necessarily wrong. Right. So, and as I mentioned, I think part of science does this, you have your hypothesis and then you go test your hypothesis to see if there's support for it. So that's a very valid way of doing science is to have your conclusion and then see, and then test that conclusion to see if it matches up. But here you're kind of, again, comparing two different theories saying, which one best explains just what we see. And, and so you're talking about this kind of uh, uh, act upon by the laws of nature where you have this end result, you're going to get this kind of no matter what versus what you keep calling a historically contingent evolutionary process. Um, and so in the book, you kind of describe this as being rewind the tape, replay it, you're going to get a different result because 
this is kind of purely randomness. Is that kind of a way to describe the historically contingent evolutionary process is if it's random and it could have been different? Um, can you kind of maybe expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that, I mean, that, you know, that's the, the metaphor that Stephen Jay Gould uh, developed as a, who, who is one of the leading advocates of this idea of historical contingency. At least he popularized the idea in his book, Wonderful Life. And so when we go to the example of proteins, you know, then you would say, well, you know, if evolution could rewind itself and replay, the outcome would be uh, maybe amino acids would be used, but it would be a completely different set of 20 amino acids, right? Or, you know, the idea that you have an amide linkage and not an ester linkage, you know, for these macromolecules that are carrying out, you know, all the different activities inside the cell. Uh, is significant because when, you know, Stanley Miller did his famous Miller-Urey experiment, uh, he did form amino acids in that experiment. And this is meant to simulate the conditions of the the early earth. But he ended up producing far more uh, alpha hydroxy acids. And so if if evolution uh, is historically contingent, then you would actually predict that it ought to be, you know, we ought to be looking at biochemistry built around polyesters, uh, not polyamides, right? For, for, you know, the analogs to proteins. So the, the, the point here is that it doesn't look like there were al- alternative possibilities that were available to building proteins from the same set of 20 a- amino acids using, again, the same, you know, using amide linkages to join them. And, and again, the properties of the amide bond are this, these really unusual properties that set up everything in, the, in protein structure in just the right way so that, that uh, proteins will fold into these higher order structures. You know, it's really eerie to me to think that, you know, you could have, again, these proteins made from amino acids and that the chain geometry is this just right geometry so that proteins will actually fold into the folds that we see in nature. You know, if the diameter of the protein chain was any larger or the distance between interaction points on a protein chain where the chain is interacting with itself was either further away or closer together, you wouldn't actually get the folds that we see in nature, which turn out to be these just right folds. So it's just eerie how all of these different properties uh, are kind of reinforcing one, one another and are kind of conspiring together to produce these really highly unusual molecules that we just take for granted because we're so familiar with them, but they're highly unusual molecules that seem to be unique in their, their, in their capacity to support living systems. Yeah. So I, I, I'm listening to this. I'm thinking, okay, there's, 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 there's got to be people, right, that, that are maybe kind of confused by what you just said in the sense of this is that you talk about all these protein chains and then these folds we see in nature. And so maybe the question is, like, where are we seeing these folds? Like, what are these chains building? What are they creating? Like, yeah. like we're, we're breaking this down into biochemical systems. But as you build up these protein folds, how are we what are we seeing these then making that then the rest of us go, right. oh, that's what these protein folds are the building blocks of or are building. Right. Yeah, and so maybe a very quick primer on on proteins. Proteins are uh, really important molecules in in biochemical systems because they are the molecules that are carrying out all the different operations in the cell. 
they're playing a role in forming all the different structures inside the cells. Uh, and even the most simplest bacterium uh, would have, that could ex exist independently, would have about minimally, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 distinct proteins that actually perform highly specific operations. Many of those proteins will occur in multiple copies inside the cell. And, and, uh, and so these proteins are, again, critical for, for living systems because they, they, again, are the workhorse molecules of life. And these proteins are formed by linking together amino acids into a molecular chain that then, and that chain can then fold on itself to have local structures in the backbone. This is referred to as the secondary structure. And then those locally folded structures will then actually interact with each other to form three-dimensional folds that are, are actually critical for the protein function. So the protein is, has multiple layers of, of, of structure. The primary structure, which is the sequence, the secondary structure, which is the, the backbone folds in local regions. And then there's a tertiary structure, which is the way that those chains fold in three-dimensional space. And, and so, for example, if you have a, a protein that is 150 amino acids in length, there's about 10 to the 68 ways that you could possibly, that chain could possibly fold, theoretically. <laughs> That's just an incredibly large number. Yeah. Turns out that what we see in nature is only about three to 4,000 folds. And so even though there's a huge number of possible folds that could exist for, there's only a very small number that, that actually, you know, exist in nature. And those folds, again, have these just right properties that make proteins functional, that make proteins so useful. And it turns out that there's something within the laws of nature that are constraining these folds so that you, you get the just right folds that give proteins the just right properties. Uh, so, and, and, and part of what's constraining it is again, the diameter of the protein chain and the distance between interaction points on the protein chain. And if those values are not precisely what they are, you're, you wouldn't get proteins to fold in, in, in the way that they fold. So it's, it, to me, it's, it's really very eerie you know, uh, it's in mind blowing that, you know, proteins have this, these just, just right, you know, structural parameters to be able to fold in the way they fold. Okay. So, so you're, you're saying here, okay. So when we look at proteins and, and all the formations and, and, and structures that they create, um, the natural selection being this historically contingent evolutionary process, uh, does not, uh, give us the results that we see. And so uh, you're offering a better explanation, which is there are these built-in aspects of the laws of nature that is a goal directed producing the end result that then produces life. And that's why maybe the anthropic principle can apply yeah. here, uh, for yeah. the, uh, so would that be right? Is my uh, seeing you're not in your yeah, head? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, another way to think about it is that, you know, if, if evolutionary processes are responsible, you know, for a particular feature in biology, we wouldn't necessarily expect any kind of rationale for why that feature is that way. Right. Because, you know, ev it, evolution is just using what's available and, and is cobbling together a system that works just good enough to survive. And that 
that system can then serve as the starting point for the next evolutionary pathway, where it again will take that and modify it and maybe add something to it and cobble together, you know, a, a, a subsequent system that again is just good enough for survival, but that there's no rationale really for why it's that way, other than it's just the, the vestige of, a, of an evolutionary process that's historically contingent. Yeah. Uh, but, but if there's, if the laws of nature are influencing the structures that we see, then there should be this rationale for why they are exactly that way. So that's another way to think about it. Is there, or is there, are there good reasons why it's that way? And if it was any other way, uh, you, the system wouldn't work because that rationale is no longer satisfied. So that's another way to think about it. Yeah. You know, you know. Okay, perfect. So uh, an objection comes to mind that I know uh, applies to the anthropic principle from an astronomical perspective. And I think the same thing would apply here. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But my first thing is, uh, you mentioned that uh, are there good reasons why it is this way? And so I'm kind of curious from a non-theistic perspective. So the, the secular scientist that agrees with you saying, look, we do believe that the laws of nature uh, are goal directing these systems to this end result. And it's not this historically contingent process. Um, what then is their explanation? What are the reasons that they would give for why it is this way if they are not invoking kind of the God hypothesis, so to speak? Yeah, well, you know, um, I mean, up to this point, you know, th this idea of, a, of an anthropic principle in biochemistry is really something that isn't largely entertained by life scientists. And so really the, the book is, is, is essentially carving new ground potentially scientifically, because it's suggesting another way to think about the origin of, of biochemical systems, uh, you know, and, um, and, and so the, the explanation that you typically see uh, from biochemists is that, well, what we're looking at is, again, just something that evolution cobbled together. Uh, let me give you another example that might be a little bit easier to understand, or maybe yeah. it's more difficult to understand. You know, <laughs> so this like, is another one to give us another way of looking at it. Yeah. So, so for example, uh, when, you, when we talk about how proteins are made, that's called the central dogma of molecular biology, where the information needed to make a protein chain is har harbored in, in DNA. And then that information is read by the cell's machinery. And there, there's a molecule called messenger RNA that is a copy of the information in the DNA structure, but it, it's kind of an intermediate that is short-lived and it makes its way to the ribosome where there are ribosomal RNA molecules that are playing a role in reading that messenger RNA. And then there are these transfer RNA molecules that bring amino acids in the right order to the ribosome so that the protein chain can be built. And so uh, most biologists would look at the, the central dogma, and they would say, well, this is just an evolutionary vestige of uh, the RNA world, where the very first biochemistry was RNA-based, and then eventually the RNA world evolved to give rise to the DNA protein world, where these RNA intermediates are just simply vestiges of, of, the, of the evolutionary history and the, the RNA world. And so there's no real reason why the information flows in the way it does, other than this is just what the central, what, what evolution wrought. Well, there has been work that's been done basically showing that 
in order to have living systems, you have to have molecules made up of smaller subunit molecules. Sometimes these are called molecular alphabets. Uh, and that, uh, that the molecular alphabets, you know, that are used to build, you know, in this case, something like DNA are, are going to be, or give you the complexity you need for, for biochemistry to be possible. But because DNA has to replicate, has to undergo replication, that puts constraints on what a, 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 a molecular alphabet can do because it can't just simply adopt any kind of possible sequence of building blocks to create functional molecules because it's constrained by the need to replicate. Hmm. So what happens is you have to have a secondary molecular alphabet that is specified by the primary alphabet, but can't, but, but has the freedom now to adopt any kind of structure because it's no longer uh, constrained by the need to replicate. And of course, to go from a primary alphabet to a secondary alphabet, you need a decoding system, right? And so when we look, in, in other words, what I just described is the central dogma, where DNA is the primary molecular alphabet, proteins are the secondary, and you have to have a decoding system, which is essentially what uh, RNA molecules are doing. And so, in other words, the central dogma reflects this deep-seated logic, this deep-seated rationale for, uh, for the flow of information. In other words, you can't have life if you don't have something like the central dogma essentially uh, you know, dictating and constraining the flow of information. And so, so in other words, you know, what we're saying is that, again, the central dogma doesn't show the features of historical contingency, but rather is, reflects a rationale that, uh, uh, you know, explains why it is exactly this way. And, and in, in a sense, that rationale then seems to be arising out of the constraints of the laws of nature. And, and so hence it must, the central dogma must be predetermined uh, at the time of the universe's formation, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so again, I think it's kind of that idea of like, if you are, um, I don't know, playing a game or something where the end goal has been determined or the purpose of the game, like that in my mind, it's like, okay, then you can say that, but like, how did, how did this become the purpose? How did this become the end goal? And we know that purpose and end goals, teleology points back to, kind of that designer. And so uh, really a, a good explanation is, is a creator and it does point well to that, but it doesn't necessarily, um, I don't know if I can say that, like require that maybe, because again, like you can yeah. be a non-Christian scientist and, and recognize this, this purpose built in. Right. Now, Here, the, here's another analogy. Yeah. Sorry to, to No, you're good. Here's an, another analogy. So suppose that, you know, I'm, I'm at a low point in, in some kind of geographical landscape and, and, I carve out a, a, a small place in the ground that perfectly fits like a, a red ball that I'm putting in the ground, right? So, you know, you would say, well, obviously that that hole was designed to perfectly fit that red ball, right? Uh, and the fact that I actively put it in there means that that arrangement was, again, something that was, was predetermined by, by me as an intelligent agent. Now, let's say that I, also, another scenario would be I could carve that, that hole in the ground that perfectly fits the red ball, 
And now I could build this elaborate contraption so that when I put the ball in that contraption, no matter where I place the ball in that contraption, it invariably is going to, the ball's gonna roll down a predetermined pathway to go right to that, that divot in the ground that perfectly fits the red ball. Mm-hmm. And so in other words, you, you know, whether you think about that, that, that perfect match between the, the ground and the ball as being, you know, it's, it's design either way. In one case, I'm actively placing the ball there. In the other case, I've built a contraption. I've, I've rigged the, the system at the very onset so that the ball is going to go exactly where I want it to go. And, yeah. and that would be in contrast to historical contingency, which just says I drop the ball at the high point and it's just going to meander down the hill and it's going to settle wherever it settles. And if I repeat that process again, it's going to meander down the hill and it might, you know, ricochet off of a rock and go, it wind up someplace completely different. And so every time I roll the ball down the hill, it's going to wind up in a different spot just be, by, by just the, the sheer chance, you know, of the, of the process. And if I drop yeah. it someplace else, it's going to wind up someplace differently. So that's really the three scenarios that we're looking at here is, you know, uh, and, and so when we look at biochemical systems, it doesn't look like somebody just dropped the ball and let it roll down the side of the hill. It looks like either somebody precisely placed the ball exactly where they wanted it, or they created a contraption, you know, that is constrained by the laws of nature that is predetermined to allow that ball to wind up exactly where you want it. So, yeah. so in other words, you're, you can't escape the, the design. You can't escape the, the, the idea that things seem to be jimmy rigged yeah. for, for a particular outcome. Yeah, I, got, I like that example because then it pops into my mind other examples, right? Of of like you know like the videos you see on YouTube or whatever, where it's like uh, the, the the all the sequence of events, right? So someone rolls a ball down a track that then hits a truck that rolls into a thing that then ignites a fire that then burns a string that swings a pendulum that knocks this ball that goes down and eventually the ball falls in the cup, right? And this whole entire system has been set up to get the ball to fall in the cup, versus like that you know plinko or whatever that game is where you drop the disc at the top and it hits all the pegs and it can bounce wherever it wants and it comes out one. One final slot and if it comes out the slot that says you're the winner then hey you won but there's 10 other slots that could have fallen down and every time you drop the disc it falls down uh it's going to go down a different slot and that's why maybe you don't win sometimes and you get lucky other times and so uh that kind of i think perfectly leads me into the the objection i think that i always hear against the anthropic principle from an astronomy perspective that could apply here is is why aren't we just the the lucky winners of the cosmic lottery right and so you are the random ball falling down the thing and and if the ball didn't fall into the hole uh, if it didn't land on jackpot then we would not be here to be talking about this. Um, But the fact is that we're here talking about this, that we won the cosmic lottery. The ball did roll down the hill and happened to fall into that slot. And therefore life did happen. And now we are here to talk about it. Uh, We just happened to get lucky. Uh, with that yeah. objection that we, I think that's objection against the cosmology. uh, Would that also apply here to to biochemistry as well? Yes, exactly. It it would. And and in a sense, whether somebody is a theist or a non-theist looking at at the anthropic principle, we all agree that, of course, if if the universe was any differently, if if biochemistry was any biochemistry was any different, then there wouldn't be observers here to realize that it was different, right? And so, yes, everybody agrees with that, but that doesn't really seem to be a satisfying explanation, you know, because to me, you know, again, 
you're you're looking at at systems that just seem to be jimmy rigged for a particular outcome and and it makes much more sense to me that that there's ultimately something that is has has determined that that the universe is exactly the way that it is you know a, an analogy that we could use uh to make that point uh comes from richard swinburne you know he's a, a philosopher of religion i think at oxford university if i'm not mistaken and and he uses what's called the sharpshooter analogy where he said so you you've heard this before about your I'm, I'm i'm google searching it right now to just find the, the exact i'm like as you're talking i was like oh shoot i need to find this sharpshooter analogy because i'm i i, I want to bring this up <laughs> perfect yeah yeah well it you know and, and it's a great idea i mean it really makes the point because you know suppose uh that I, you know, wind up getting convicted of some kind of crime right. and and I'm going to be put to death. And so I'm blindfolded, you know, and I'm put in front of a firing squad and, you know, I hear ready, aim, fire. And then when all the, the gunshots end, I'm still standing there. And, and you know, the, the, the uh, you know, you could always say, well, of course you're, you, you, you're standing there because if you didn't survive, you know, the, 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 the execution attempt, uh, or if you, you, you know, if you, if you didn't survive it, then you wouldn't be here to recognize that you survived it. Right. right? So that's essentially, you know, the, the, the way many times people interpret it. But to me, you know, when you're dealing with sharpshooters that are trained to, you know, hit the target and there's 20 of them lined up shooting at you and all, and all of them miss the, th the, the, your response to that isn't, Wow, you know, uh, you know, if I'm, you know, I'm alive because if I wasn't, I wouldn't be, you know, here to to recognize that I'm alive. No, yeah. your 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 response is going to be somebody must have determined that I would live, right? right? That that somebody rigged the execution attempt so that I would survive it, and and that's essentially what I think you, you're looking at when you look at the universe, and now when you look at biochemical systems, is that there's so many examples of these anthropic coincidences with if and if even one of them wasn't exactly the way that it would it, it is life simply wouldn't exist whether it's in biochemistry or whether it's in cosmology right yeah and i think that's the beauty of it is it's not just like one coincidence of someone just so happened to shoot at you and miss you have 10 sharpshooters uh, all aiming at you and all miss and um, and then that's maybe just biochemistry. And then you have another and then it's round two. All right, let's try again to hit him. And then, you know, so you add on astronomy and you add on these different things and these arguments all sort of uh, come together. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I just I just thought it was so funny. I was I was Google searching to get that exact analogy when you mentioned it. Um, now, there's there's other aspects that we have uh, that you mentioned in the book. We've spent most of the time talking about proteins and here we're, we have about 18 minutes left. And so I'm kind of curious as 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 you research this, um, I guess the question I had in my mind is, is, is this information that you've always um, known and just has never kind of been put in this way? And so this book really is just taking stuff that you've always known and putting it and applying it, applying the anthropic principle to it. Or is there information that as you were researching for this book um, that you actually made maybe a new discovery that you were surprised by and how that fit into this system? Yeah, well, um, you know, I uh, began working on this book probably over 10 years ago. And it was about that time that I kind of had this aha moment 
that the anthropic principle very well may actually uh, apply to biochemistry. And so over the span of 10 years really was, you know, doing the work to asking the question, you know, do, do proteins, do nucleic acids, do cell membranes, you know, display evidence for the anthropic principle? Do we see it in, you know, in the central dogma? Do we see it in, in energy metabolism and in, in, in central carbon metabolism? And so, you know, in a sense, the surprise happened about 10 or 12 years ago. But, you know, where I first thought that there was a, a case to be made for the anthropic principle was with proteins. And then later it was re recognizing that the, the, the optimal nature of the genetic code, which is due to its, its redundancy where you have multiple codons specifying the same amino acid, when I realized, oh, that, that redundancy that produces this, these, this highly optimal code is actually itself specified by the laws of nature. Those were the two kind of aha moments. But as I did the, continued to do the research, I was shocked to find that even in things like the structure of gly the glycolytic pathway or the Krebs cycle, that these are, these are you know, metabolic pathways that are just right, made up of just right intermediates with the just right properties, and that there's no alternative that will actually work in place of glycolysis or in the Krebs cycle. So it's unique. And again, the, the properties of the components of these metabolic pathways are, you know, seem to be fundamentally dictated by the laws of nature, not by, you know, selected by a historically contingent evolutionary process. Uh, and, and, and so I was surprised that it even included, you know, uh, you know the energy, you know, metabolism pathways. Uh, I, that was something that I wasn't necessarily uh, expecting to see. Yeah. So I want to kind of maybe get into that a little bit. Um, again, for the, the person who's listening is saying, okay, so what, what are these different glyc, I, I can't even re, re say what you said, glyco, glycomic pathways or whatever it is. Um, what are these, uh, what do they do for us? Um, what does that allow? Right. How does that, how does that give us life? Um, and, and kind of maybe what is so unique about this, as you briefly mentioned that yeah. these are kind of unique. Yeah. Well, like, for example, when we talk about these pathways, this is a part of biochemistry known as intermediary metabolism. And it, in, an, in an effect involves the chemical interconversions of small molecules. Uh, and and these, this is important because these, these pathways, for example, glycolysis in the Krebs cycle are taking sugar molecules and they're breaking them down in a step-by-step -step manner to ultimately produce carbon dioxide and water. And they liberate energy and that liberation of energy is is then used to to drive processes that that generate molecules that are used to power the cells operations they also are producing side uh, pathways that convert those intermediates in that process of breaking down sugars uh, th these intermediates are also siphoned off into other pathways that are used to make you know, amino acids and nucleobases and, and, and sugars and things like that that are used, fatty acids uh, that are used for structural purposes inside the cell. So these pathways harvest energy and they, and they make the building blocks of life. But if you've ever seen the, the sum total of metabolic pathways, you know, that go on in the cell, it's this giant chart where it's just 
reactions going in every imaginable direction. Uh, and, you know, it, the complexity is bewildering. And, you know, it's very tempting to look at that and say, well, this is just what chance wrought. This is, mm-hmm. There's no rhyme or reason. But as you actually get into the, the actual details, the intimate details of how these pathways work, you suddenly see this incredibly elegant logic for why they're that, that way. And you begin to uh, see that the intermediates that are part of these pathways have these highly unusual just right properties that again seem to suggest that, and, and again, you cannot conceive of alternative pathways that would work like the glycolytic pathway or the Krebs cycle, for example. So would a would a relevant analogy be like I, as you say that I'm I'm thinking of like a a top down view of like one of the interchanges here of the Southern California freeway systems where you have three different freeways connecting and you got five different levels of of roads where you have to exit here to go if you want to go north on this one or south on that one if you want to go straight and there's all these and you would look at that and it just looks like this jumbled mess. Uh, and then you you realize, um, oh my goodness, it took some crazy engineers a lot of time to figure out how all the cars can exit and enter and switch and get over mm-hmm. to get to make sure you can go wherever you want without having to have just one massive stop sign or whatever where you just turn. And so you realize actually these pathways of the roads interconnected is actually a very designed, um, goal-oriented um, right thing that was created. Is that a relevant kind of way of thinking about this? Yeah, yes, it is. And uh, yeah, it's, so that would be a perfect example is that, that again, there's this rationale that undergirds these pathways, you know, and, uh, uh, and, 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 and to extend the analogy, it would be that the only way you could have the freeway system in Southern California is exactly the way that it is, that there was no other way to design the freeway right. system. Right. And, and, and that's what you're looking at in biochemistry. So that's a great analogy. Perfect. Now, one of the things I mentioned here, kind of changing gears a little bit into your chapter on uh, nucleic acids, um, is just kind of a side question, I guess I had about DNA that I'd always heard. And you mentioned here in, in the chapter, you talk about how the double helix of DNA forms when the coupled polynucleotide chain twists in a right-handed direction. And so I've often heard, like, this is one of those arguments of why um, the... Um, uh, uh, by just blanking on what it's called, but the 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 experiment done uh, to to show how um, you know the we talked about the very beginning. Oh my goodness! Uh, but show how the amino acids were created, right? Uh, in the um, right. what's the experiment? Oh, the Miller-Urey experiment. There you go, Miller-Urey experiment. Um, how one of the problems with this is yes, it, it it created amino acids, but they were both like left-handed, right-handed amino acids. And in order to actually get the protein folds that you need, you have to have all right-handed. Uh, can you maybe? Uh, Explain that a little bit, because I noticed you mentioned, you said here, they all twist in the right-handed direction. Is there a connection between what I'm asking and, and what you mentioned here, or are those two different points? Uh, that's a great question, and I'm not quite sure what is uh, dictating the, the right-handed turn uh, to, you know, to, to alpha helices. But if you um, have like right-handed and left-handed, would that create a problem where you need all, right? Because then they don't fit together, right. and so it all so, has to be so, the same. So, yeah, what you're talking about is chirality. Right. So uh, it, you know, molecule, if you have a, a, a organic molecule where there's a central carbon atom that has four chemical substituents that are different, <clears throat> there's actually two ways you can orient those substituents in space so that the, the two ways are mirror images of each other. So that's called chirality. <coughs> Excuse me. And so in proteins, 
you have to have all of the amino acids in in the left-handed configuration. Uh, if 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 not, then you simply don't get functional proteins. Or they could all be in a right-handed configuration, but it's either right-handed or left-handed. Uh, in in the sugars that make up DNA all have to be right-handed uh, in the right-handed configuration. Uh, and, and and I don't think anybody knows why the left-handed configuration was chosen for for DNA, for protein or for amino acids and why the right-handed configuration was chosen for you know uh, for uh, DNA. And it very well may be that that chirality may actually be what's responsible for why the helix goes in a right-handed direction. But I don't I I don't know that to be the case. So it's yeah. a, you know it's an interesting a very interesting question that I, I don't think there's a, to my knowledge, a good answer on the part of biochemists at this point, you know, why that's the case. But this is where what we're dealing with now is actually a scientific question more so than a question of Christian apologetics. Right. Because again, if the anthropic principle really does manifest in biochemistry, we'd actually argue that there very well could be a reason why, uh, why, you know, the, the, we see the right-handed helix and why we see the D, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, you know, the, the D enantiomers in DNA and the L enantiomers in, in proteins, that there actually could be a reason. So even though we don't know what that is, that would be the prediction that we would make. Now, yeah. something that's kind of cool about DNA is that it, not only do you have a double helix, but, but DNA actually supercoils. And, and so in, in bacteria, for example, the DNA is a circular chromosome, right? And if you've ever picked up a, a telephone and, and you twisted the, the phone, the receiver, and you hung it back up, have you know, noticed how the cord kind of goes in all kinds of wonky directions? Well, that's basically supercoiling because what you've done is by twisting the phone cord and then hanging up the phone, you've introduced torsional stress in the cord that causes it to, to wind that way. And so with DNA, that supercoiling is a way to actually get the, the large molecule into a very compact volume mm. so it fits inside the cell. Uh, but there's two different ways the supercoiling can go. It can go either negative or positive supercoiling, depending on whether you which direction you, how you create the torsional stress. Well, it turns out that in, in DNA, it's always negative supercoiling. And there's actually a reason why, because if it's negative supercoiling, it actually makes it easier to unwind the DNA double helix so the cell's machinery can access the, the single strands of DNA to transcribe it or to replicate it. If it was a positive supercoiling, the, 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 the DNA double helix would be so tightly compacted that the cell's machinery couldn't access it. So there's an example where, you know, similar to what you're asking, we do know the rationale for why supercoiling is negative instead of positive. Uh, but again, you know, you, th that rationale, I think, is, is pointing to something beyond simply historical contingency as the explanation for, you know, for, for DNA. Yeah.
Wow. Well, okay. So I am like amazed and I'm blown away and this is so cool. Uh, but again, I think the question always comes into, uh, all right, so this is some really awesome science. How then can someone who maybe can't remember all these details or even someone who, like if anyone's still watching 55 minutes into this conversation, they're obviously fascinated by, by this topic. Um, so let's try to get practical. What, what, what do we do with this information as far as apologetics, evangelism? How 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 do you suggest this be used to, to not just go, wow, that's really interesting, but actually whether it's build up the life of the believer or be used actually in doing apologetics and evangelism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, to, to me, I think again, you know, I would go back to the idea of the anthropic principle. What makes it so powerful is that not only does it seem as the universe is designed, but there's actually me, there's actually a meaning, a purpose, uh, an intentionality behind the universe. And that intentionality seems as if it's pointing to the advent of, of life in, in the advent of humanity. And so likewise, when we look at biochemical systems, they are just right systems. They're exactly the way they need to be. There's no other possible way they can be. And it seems as if these things had been already predetermined before the universe even began. And, and, and so to me, it's again, the idea that there is purpose, you know, to, to the way biochemical systems are, and that purpose is pointing to something uh, that uh, has us in mind, if you will. That yeah. that it's pointing to the the fact that 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 there's that whoever created the universe wanted the universe to be filled full of life, or wanted life to be possible in the universe, and, and that to me, you know, uh, not only again points to design, uh, but it means that you know by extension. Uh, it's that creator that made a universe like that, that made life like that. Uh, if that creator made me, then I too am fit for a purpose as well. And, and, and so, you know, to me, I think it, it helps to augment and extend the argument for God's existence and the design of the universe. Uh, but, you know, when you start talking about purpose, then it opens up the possibility that there's really a purpose for each of us as as human beings. And what does this do to your faith? Like, like as you study this, you get into the deep, deep dive into biochemistry. Like, how does this affect your love, appreciation? Because, you know, I try to make the case to people like, look, by, by, by studying God's creation, like that is an act of love to him. And so I'm kind of curious hearing from your perspective of someone who's just really gotten into this and seen these systems. How does that, what does that kind of uh, tell you about God as you kind of discussed a little right. bit, but how does that mainly, how does that shape your faith? What does that do to you spiritually after yeah. seeing and studying these things? Yeah, well, you know, and, and admittedly, you know, this is this is kind of a technical conversation. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, you can't really appreciate the argument until you actually get into the into the technical right. details of how biochemical systems work. But what's amazing to me is that God is 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 screaming at us <laughs> in the in the in the mind the most minute details. You know, to to think that the absence or the the presence of a of an OH group, a hydroxyl group on a sugar can make all the difference in the world as to whether or not life is possible. That to me is mind blowing. That, that, a, that what appears to be almost an insignificant chemical detail, even for people like me who work in biochemistry is actually incredibly important. And that the entirety of the possibility of life hinges on 
on that one particular detail to me is, you know, not only, you know, mind blowing, you know, but, but again, it, 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 it says something really profound about our creator, right? That every little detail about our lives, every little detail that uh, about the things that are going on around us are not something that are, that, that this creator is overlooked, but that this creator is paid intimate detail to these, to, you know, uh, to our lives. If, if the creator who made everything is also the redeemer, then we can be confident that every little detail of our life is actually, you know, in the creator's hand. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, at night when you sit down and say, God, thank you. And you think of the things you're thankful for, you say, thank you for, you know, polypeptide bions and energy harvesting pathways. <laughs> these things that most of us are, are unaware of just the way that God has designed and built these systems. So, wow. Dr. Fazrana, uh, man, I just can't thank you enough. Again, the work of Reasons to Believe. I love what you all do. I love having you on the show because I think that you guys just do such incredible work in, in you do all the, you do all the legwork. You do all the heavy lifting of, of diving deep into the scientific research and then presenting it in a way that I can understand it and apply it to uh, the work I do with students. And again, just in building up of my faith and seeing God is just an incredible creator that he is. And so I cannot thank you enough and want to encourage everybody to check out your book, Fit for a Purpose, a new book that you came out with. But thank you so much for taking the time today. Have this conversation with me. Well, Ryan, thanks for having me. I had a good time. Uh, you know, I hope you did and your listeners I did. as well. Oh, I always have so much fun with this. It's like, I always say, I always joke. It's like, I don't know if my listeners have fun with this, but I love these conversations. So I'm going to keep having them. And uh, hey, they get, they get some views. And so I know that people are also interested as well. So thank you so much. All right, everybody. Well, what a conversation. I hope that you can take some of that information again and just help this affect how you see God as creator, as sustainer of all things, creating us for a purpose, how everything is fit for a purpose. Again, all the information to Dr. Fazrana, his book, To Reasons to Believe, is down in the description below. If you're watching on YouTube, you can check that out. As well as coming up, uh, some shows. I got one interview in uh, on the calendar uh, for April 13, actually at 8 a.m. on a Wednesday morning. I'm on my spring break, so I'm recording at a different time. Uh, again, this is going to a fun conversation with Joshua Brom talking about how to have more persuasive, better conversations in the pro-life conversation. And so kind of back to that topic uh, that we just covered a couple weeks ago as well. So with that, um, I'm going to just point you to other resources. Again, if you've enjoyed this show, check out more conversations, share this with a family or friend, go check out the book. There's awesome ways that help you again, understand it better, the world that God has created, understand Christianity, defend it well, and faithfully live it out. So with that, I will see you guys later for another conversation, another show. Uh, continue to think deeply about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. God bless everybody. See you later. I just won't hesitate to follow.